stand for the reading of God's word. John 12 will be taken up, verses 1 through 11. Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with fragrance of the oil. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. The poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on the account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Thus far, the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we do look to you as the great and the mighty God, the Lord over all. We rejoice that you have spoken in your Son the living word. We rejoice that you have preserved your word even as we have it this day. And Lord, we praise you that you've worked in our hearts, that we desire to hear your word, and that we come together with a confidence to know that you, by your word and spirit, will speak to us, and that it will be bread from heaven food for our souls, refreshing and blessing, but also that word which corrects, yea, even rebukes when needed, but especially training us in righteousness so that we'd be thoroughly equipped. Lord, bless the preaching of your word by the power of the person of your spirit, both in its going forth, in our hearing, and in our keeping. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Children, perhaps you've had a birthday. Recently, and in most of your house, I think birthdays are festive occasions. There's there's something of a celebration. And one of the things that we usually have with uh, such a celebration is food, right? Uh, In our household, on our children's birthday, uh, they got to pick birthday meals. Two of the meals they could pick from things we ordinarily ate, but they got to select what the menu would be. But one of the meals was their special meal. It was their birthday meal because it was their birthday, and they got to pick something, even something uh, special, maybe out of the ordinary, something that they really enjoyed. And, of course, then we all enjoyed them with them. But it was, we think, you know, how uh, Thanksgiving is rapidly approaching, and predominantly what do we think about when we think of Thanksgiving? It's, it's a meal, a gathering around a table with family and friends, and we celebrate with thankfulness and gratitude to God who has provided for us. And then Christmas is right around the corner, and again, we will enjoy all manner of special foods, will we not? Food, the table, family around the table, it's a festive occasion. Well, that's what we see in the text this morning. We see people gathered around a table, and they are celebrating. And that is the setting for our sermon this morning. It is the text that we take up here in these first 11 verses. It's a festive occasion, but it's also the anticipation of Passover, another meal, a gathering of families, and sitting at table in obedience to God, remembering his faithfulness in times past and his faithfulness even now. We're going to use four main headings for the sermon this morning. We'll look at serving the Savior, anointing the Savior, despising the Savior, certainly not a keeping is it not, but it's there. And finally, the Savior defends and explains. So we'll begin with serving the Savior, the first two verses. 
So as I just said, Passover is nigh, and Jesus, who had removed himself from Jerusalem, the area of Jerusalem, as the threat was real, he left Bethany, he went away from Mary and Martha's household, Lazarus' household, after the resurrection of Lazarus, and he goes to a wilderness area in a town called Ephraim. Well, he's returned from Ephraim. And when we compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke with John, we have a fully pit, fuller picture. Now, just to be clear, uh, I will probably say Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or which of them, but I just want you to know uh, that not just theologians, but the church as a whole has referred to those three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as synoptics. There's something similar about them, and their structure and flow. Uh, they deal with some of the same things in an overlapping way, a complementary way, and thus they're called the synoptic Gospels. just want you to hold on to that. If I say that, you know I'm talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's is not like those. Uh, we, always, we are now in an area, in a, last week, and there are many chapters of narrative. And so what we do is we compare Matthew... Mark and Luke, with John, we know that Jesus came to Bethany from this wilderness reason. He came through Jericho, and he's returned to the house of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And more than likely, the last house he left was Zacchaeus's house, because as he came to Jericho, Zacchaeus, as you know, climbed up in a tree. He was a man of short stature. What do we say today? Vertically challenged. And he wanted to see Jesus, and he couldn't over the crowd, so he climbs a tree. Jesus addresses him, calls him out, says, I'm going to your house. Zacchaeus is converted. He, too, like we've seen here in the book of John, received the powerful working of the Holy Spirit as he fell upon him, giving him a new heart. And Jesus goes to his house, and you see the manifestation of the work of grace that God's done in his heart as he says, I will repay all whom I've defrauded, and I will give what I have to the poor. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Jesus leaves that house of festivity to arrive in Bethany, welcomed again by friends in another celebratory time. Now, we are not stretching at all to say that Jesus would have traveled in a caravan. This is the time of the Passover, and that is what the people of God did. They would leave uh, the width and the length of the land, and they would travel up to Jerusalem, and as they would go, they would sing the Psalms of Ascent. When they come to the three feasts, they would sing the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 134. I think if you look in your Bibles, don't do that right now, but you'll see a heading, Psalm of Ascent, because they are ascending the mountain of the Lord. They are going up to Jerusalem, and they would have sung these uh, together as a people, you know, more falling into line, more gathering into the caravan, you know, the few out of the far reaches would sing, you know, a handful of voices. But as they were gathering, there would have been a great chorus of celebration as they traveled. And Jesus would have traveled with his 12 disciples to Bethany on their way up to Jerusalem, Bethany being on the way about a mile and seven tenths out of Jerusalem, and they would have arrived. They would have arrived, as we look at the calendar again, comparing the various Gospels and the sequence of events, they would have arrived on Friday. So I want to give you just a sense of the flow. They would have arrived, Jesus would arrive sometime on Friday in Bethany. There would have been members of the caravan who would have gone on to Jerusalem, some of them you know, pinching their tents, camping along the way on the hills on the outskirts of Jerusalem, making their way into the city. And as they went, having traveled with Jesus, what would they have announced? Well, they would have answered the question. It was in chapter 11, verse 56. Those that have come, some of them are already there. They're saying they saw Jesus, and they spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? That's the great question. Well, those who traveled in that pilgrim band to Jerusalem would have entered into the city, and they would have said, Jesus is here. He's in Bethany. Well, then Saturday comes. It's the Sabbath. Sabbath begins Friday night as the sun sets, runs through to Saturday evening as the sun sets. And so Jesus has been able to spend that Sabbath with his friends. Now think about that. By the time of the next Sabbath, Jesus' body will lay in the tomb. This is his last Sabbath, and he spends it with his friends, this family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. By the next Sabbath, he will be laying his body, his humanity, will lay in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Well, then the sun sets on Saturday evening, the Sabbath being over, and we find what John records 
The six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. In verse 2, there they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So it's Saturday evening, the Sabbath is over. They're enjoying a meal together, a celebration. Now, verse 9, we find out that uh, there were many who came to Bethany to see Jesus. They too, the Sabbath are over, is over. They can travel more than the Sabbath limited distance. And they're coming out. Why are they coming out? Because Jesus is there, but they're also coming in to see Lazarus. Because you can imagine pilgrims have come in from not just Israel, but those who were part of the dispersion, some who have been traveling for weeks on foot, by ship, by other means, and they've arrived, and now they are hearing about the resurrection of Lazarus, a four-day dead man whom Jesus has raised, and they said, I want to see this. And so many, John says, have gone out of Jerusalem to Bethany to see Jesus, the one everyone's talking about, but they also want to see Lazarus. And so the word is out in Jerusalem. Now the very next day, Sunday, which is what will be next Lord's Day, if you look at your Bibles, you'll see it's the triumphal entry. As this last week leading up to the crucifixion is unfolding. Now that we have the timing laid out, let's look at the supper. Matthew 26, 6, we learn that the supper was hosted in the house of a certain Simon. And even then, when Matthew writes of him, he refers to him as Simon the leper. Now, he does not have leprosy anymore. But this Simon, the leper, Jesus had healed. And so he is hosting this meal in his home. And he has made provision for this family. Perhaps Mary and Martha have also brought from their uh, means as well to make this meal significant. Now consider what's happening here. Simon is a leper who Jesus has healed. Consider leprosy. Leprosy is a long, slow death. It's as though you are living and your body is dying bit by bit even as you live. The picture of death is upon you. There is the smell of death that is upon you. Simon was a man who was dying. He had to live out and away from the people. If people approached him, he had to cover his face and cry out, unclean. This was all set out in the law of Moses. And so leprosy, we should understand, is a very vivid picture of the spiritualities of sin. We're unclean. We're dead and we're dying. The stench of death it was in our members. We are slowly decaying until the day of our death finally arrives. And all lepers were a picture of that. But Simon, God has had mercy on him. The Lord Jesus Christ has healed him. And his flesh is whole and sound. He's been delivered from death. And then there's Lazarus, who was dead, who lay in the grave. Four days, a rotting corpse, so that the sisters were alarmed that when Jesus announced to roll back the tomb, uh, the stone from the tomb, he was dead. And Jesus raised him. And so it is. Think about that, Simon and Lazarus. The gratitude that is in their hearts. The overwhelming gratitude for the mighty, merciful, miraculous power of the Lord Jesus Christ to save them physically. My friends, how much more should we celebrate the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us spiritually? He gave his life so that we who were dead might live. He laid down his life so that we who were dead could be raised to newness of life. He who was pure and undefiled, the Lamb of God without blemish or spot, he became sin so that we who were sinners could become the children of God. This is why Jesus came into the world. And so it is, Simon Perhaps family members from his household, too, we're not told. But Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they are providing a meal, a supper for Jesus and his companions. Now, the meals that were taken to that place, they, were, they would recline. They would lay on their sides, children, at a table. I know we are used to sitting at a table, right? But they would have been laying on their sides around a slightly elevated table with pillows and couch-like things, and they would... And the table, in this case, more likely would have been like a large U with the members around it. And there would be at least 15 people present for this event. At the table, there would have been Jesus and the 12, that's 13, and Simon and Lazarus, that's 15. There may have been more men 
Uh, we would understand that Simon was a man who had some means, that he had a house of such size and that he could host such a party. And what do we find then? Verse 2, they, there they made him a supper, and Martha served them. There's Martha. Isn't that what we usually think of when we think of Martha? I know many of you women have read women's books, and much has been made about Martha's service, and it should be. Martha is a remarkable example of what it is to serve, to minister to the needs of others. And there's Martha around the table, making sure that the men that are reclined at the table have what they need. Now, this is going to seem very counterculture to us, but nonetheless, it was true. In that day, women did not recline at the table with the men, when the men ate. That's still typical in Middle Eastern culture today. The women eat separate from the men, and the men are waited on first. And that's what was happening way back then. Martha is a marvelous example. Let us also understand, whether we're male or female, men or woman, boy or girl, service, serving others, is a noble thing. It is a noble thing. Jesus is even commended to us that we serve one another, that we care for one another. He's going to picture that vividly in the next chapter when he, the king of glory, strips and girds himself and washes the feet of his disciples, the lowest task for a servant or a slave in a household. They're serving them all. Now, this would be a festive time, a time of rejoicing. You know, you can think of Lazarus recounting his story. No doubt questions, what was it like? What was it like when you heard Jesus call? All those questions we would love to add Lazarus, right? And so here's this band of brothers around the table constant questions. And Simon, how's it gone for you, Simon? I remember when the Lord healed you. What have you done since then? A wonderful conversation with a focus upon the most elevated guest of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, what these two households have come together to do for Jesus is a small thing in comparison to what Jesus has done for them. My friends, we should understand that. We, we may not be able to have Jesus sit at our table and supply him a food, but Jesus is with us and he's in our hearts, he's in our homes, and he has called us to serve him, to obey him. So just consider my application. As we consider so great a salvation as we have received, we might be asking, what can I do to show my love for Jesus? How can I express my gratitude to the Lord? Well, Jesus has told us later on in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, and that what we do, we love Jesus, he says, you will keep my commandments. That sounds like, well, that's simple. That's just said so quickly. But are we not reminded week by week as we go through the commandments just how lofty a thing that is? Who is sufficient for these things? To keep the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even if people say, well, he only gave two commandments, to, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Well, if we're honest, we step back, well, what does that look like? Well, it's the first table of the law and the second table of the law. And then all the things that flow from that. You know, week after week after week for years, our elders are regularly expositing and explaining and demonstrating and declaring to us what it is to keep the law of God. And it's who is sufficient for these things. But it's what we've been called to. And we should understand that we do so by the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit who abides within us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John focuses on this very much in 1 John. It's remarkable how many times he takes up this idea of love and commandment keeping. He says, just for example, John 2, 1 John 2, 3 and 4, by this we know that we, by this we know that we know him, there's the beginning, if we keep his commandments. And he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. We will confess our faith shortly later on in the service and we will declare that as a manifestation of our love for God, now I am able to thank God for the salvation with grateful obedience to his holy law. It's one of the chief ways that we demonstrate our love. We have been redeemed. We have been given new hearts. We have been delivered out of a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We have taken from a destination of an eternity in hell and given a destination of an eternity in heaven. We have been given a new citizenship. We belong to a new family. God is our father, no longer the one who we rebel against. Our proper response of gratitude is obedience to our God by 
the power of his spirit working in us. Love for God is shown by love for neighbor. And we see Simon and Lazarus are ministering to the most basic needs, food and drink. And in Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of this. After two previous parables, he tells a third where the king has gathered himself. It's clearly a picture of him seated on his throne in the day of judgment. And he separates all the mass of humanity. On his left hand are the goats and on his right hand are the sheep. And what's the distinction made? How are they vetted or winnowed? How is it determined where people are at? It's by how they have cared for others. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was hungry, you fed me. What does Jesus say? If you have done it for the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Do we want to express our gratitude to Christ for the great salvation that he has given to us? We serve one another. We care for his people. We minister to those who belong to him. And we're told in Scripture that in so doing, some have entertained angels unaware. What a marvelous thing. There's Martha serving. But it's not just Martha. It's Lazarus and it's Simon serving their Lord out of gratitude from the heart. We're called to do the same. And we are enabled by the Word of God and the Spirit of God also to serve the Lord. Well, the second thing we see is the anointing of the Savior. Who knew that such a thing could be so scandalous? But indeed, John records it, and it is. It's in all the Gospels that record it. Mark and Matthew, I think. I don't believe Luke has it. Um, We're told then, this is the setting, this is the occasion, what's been going on. Then Mary, notice she's not been mentioned. Martha's serving, the men are reclining. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the head of, of the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance, I'm going to change the word, of the ointment. Let's consider what this ointment is. But before we do that, I want to, I want to draw your attention to something because it's critical. Then, that's how the New King James translates it. There's something else. There's a little particle in the Greek that's often, Ryan will find this out, often find it out, and it's untranslated or untranslatable, and sometimes one over there. Well, this, this is not an unusual thing. Actually, the word then often means then, the little Greek word for then. But sometimes it means therefore. And I wholeheartedly agree with William Hendrickson as he makes the case that this is one of the occasions when we're to take that little word with the particle that's in front of it, that this is a therefore in the fullest sense of therefore. So that what follows, what Mary is doing, is tied to what's come before. Mary's actions are tied to Lazarus. More importantly, Mary's actions are tied to what Jesus has done for Lazarus. And thus Martha and Mary, the marvelous, merciful grace he has shown to them to raise their brother from the dead. Lazarus is reclined at the table... With Jesus, the very picture of health. Therefore, therefore, Mary does what she does. As we want further confirmation of this, look back at chapter 11, verse 2. As John begins to tell the story of Lazarus and his impending death, we're told that it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil. He's not even come to that, but he's writing to a church who know these things. And if we look at Mark's gospel, we might not know why they know these things, because Jesus said this will always be told wherever the gospel is told. And that is being fulfilled even today. But it was that Mary who anointed the Lord in fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Why does she do that? Therefore, because of what Jesus had done for him and for her and for that family. So John has given us a heads up, and here we are at the very act. So what does Mary do? Verse 3 again. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, spikenard, as the King James, New King James translated, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped her feet with the hair. Now there's a whole lot going on here. There's, this is very countercultural for us, isn't it? 
It was countercultural in that day as well. Let's just take and unpack this. First, let's look at this pure nard. I think some translations say pure nard. New King James says spark nard. What is this? This is an ointment that is made from an herb that grew only in the high pastures of the Himalayas. Some of you can do your geography in your head right now and realize where Palestine is there on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. How far away today? How hard would it be today to get from Israel to Tibet, to the Himalayas? It would be hard today. Now imagine it 2,000 years ago. So this grows in the Himalayas, high pastures between India and Tibet. It was costly to make, and then it had been transported by... Mules, well, they didn't have mules then, I don't think, but donkeys, burros, you know, men's packs, eventually maybe camels and caravans. It was something that men would want to buy and continue to carry with the expectation that when they got to a final market, they would sell it for a tremendous profit. This is pure nard. This is not an oil. It is more an ointment. It is a little bit thicker than an oil. And it has come. And thus, John wants us to understand this is not a substitute. They existed. There were just like the expensive perfumes of the day, right? There's knockoff brands, right? John wants us to know this is no spike nard knockoff. This is pure nard that she has. And furthermore, the vessel that holds it is costly. As you can imagine, a costly ointment should be in a costly vessel. It was a vessel, uh, the other gospel writers tell us, was of alabaster. That means it was white. And what best we know, it was made from the finest clay, which would be like gypsum today. Some of you guys have worked with wallboard, and you cut into that, and you know that fine little dust, you mix it up, make a vessel, bake it like clay, and you have a very um, costly uh, vessel to put something precious in. And that's what Mary held in her hand. So now here's the scene as it unfolds, as we look at the various gospel accounts. Mary, her heart is overflowing with gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. She's at Jesus' feet at this end of this U, probably the head of this U-shaped table with the men reclining, and she breaks the vessel. And indeed, that type of clay would break easily. She breaks it open, and immediately the fragrance of the oil would have filled the house. If the men were busy talking, and she did that, you would have stopped to look. Where is that coming from? I'm convinced, due to the style of the homes back there, that the fragrance went on beyond the house to any that would be walking by. And again, looking at the Gospels, she began at Jesus' head and anointed his whole body, ending at his feet, because we're told in the other Gospel that she also anointed his head and went right on down to his feet. So there was such an abundance that is on his feet. Now, in violation of all the customs of that day, Mary lets down her hair. That's violation of the customs of this day, even in the Middle East. In the presence of men, she let down her hair, an action that was viewed with more than just disfavor. Then in further violation of the customs and decorum of that day, Mary wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. Whatever spikenard was left and or wet on his feet, she wiped his feet with it. Now, remember, feet are not a pleasant thing. You know, the, the lowest servant of the house was the washing. You walk around with sandals, the roads are dusty, you know, you have bruises, callus, perhaps healing wounds, even to his feet, and she wipes his hair. She is demonstrating great love. She empties the vessel, as Mark 14 tells us. It's broken. The vessel is broken. There's no preserving of it. John reports that Simon's house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. One writer has said, one hardly knows what to admire most, the irrepressible character of Mary's devotion or the lavish nature of her sacrifice. The former, of course, produced the latter. What is it David says in the Psalms? I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. This was a costly gift. This was a princely gift. This was a royal gift. And my friends, we dare not detract from what Mary has done. We dare not in any way detract from it. Many have done so to their shame. It even happens at that time, as we'll soon see. But before we go on, again, consider we don't have an opportunity to break a costly jar of a spike nard 
and poured over Jesus. But should not the gratitude in our hearts to Jesus result in our devotion to the Lord who has given us life? Consider, where would you be without the Lord Jesus Christ? What would your life look like if God had not sought you out? If God, by his word and spirit, had not pursued you and subdued you? What if God had just left you to yourself and to rebellion and your disobedience? What if God had not come after you? Indeed, what gratitude we should have toward him. For he has delivered us not only from uh, further sinning and disobedience this day, he's delivered us from the wrath to come. He stood in our place. He was our substitute. He was crucified not for his sins. He was sinless. But he took our sin and he was crucified. And the wrath of God fell upon him on that cross and he died. In his humanity he died for us. Well, there's more to Mary's anointing as we shall soon see. But before we do, notice what is the immediate response that's the despising of the Savior. Verses 4, we read, But one of his disciples, John tells us soon. Now remember, John's writing later. This is the last gospel written, as best we know. He's writing much later, and the truth is known about many things. But he says, Judas Iscariot was the one, Simon's son, who would betray him. What does he say? Judas says, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Why didn't Mary sell it? Presumably, and entrusts the 300 denarii to him. Because what does John go on to tell us? That this he said not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take what was put into it. Now, we need to understand that the disciples at that time did not suspect Judas of these things. But John has come to understand it later, and he tells us Judas was a thief, and he was in the band of Jesus it was a common money box and was entrusted to, to uh, Judas. The word that's used for here, the box, uh, seems to originally have been uh, a, a box that you would put reeds for musical instruments in to keep them safe. And Judas was the custodian, and he used this box then to carry funds that were to, given to Jesus and his men uh, by those who cared for them and enabled them on their way. We're told of women who particularly were engaged in doing that. There are many contrasts in scriptures. This is one of the sharpest contrasts that I can think of. We have just seen Mary take a vessel of pure spikenard and break it. It's worth 300 days of labor. An, an ordinary man working for a day of labor would make it a denarii. And this is 300 of those. This is like nearly a year's wages. So costly. And what does Judas think? Man, I wish that was put in my little box because I could help myself to some of that. Mary, out of sacrificial devotion, anoints Jesus, and Judas thinks of himself only. What a contrast. And indeed, that's the nature of things in the world today. You're either wholly given over to the Lord Jesus Christ, or you're always against him, even though you might appear to be with him, as Judas did. Children, think about that. Judas was willing to steal from Jesus. That's pretty stunning. He's walked with him. He's seen the miracles. He's heard the teaching. He's heard the preaching. But his heart has become harder and harder and harder. So it has no effect on him. And children, that is one of the great dangers of disobedience. When we do something, we know it's wrong, and we get away with it, nobody notices, it's easier to do it next time. And it becomes easier to do it next time. And Judas is a man who has gotten away with much and much, and he thinks no one notices. And his heart is hard. You want to know the good news? Even such a heart is not too hard for Jesus to rescue. But Judas is left to himself. He's the son of perdition. It's a sober thing. Judas could not understand why Mary would do such a thing. It just Jesus meant nothing to Judas. 
Jesus didn't care about Jesus. He's along for the ride. The interesting things that go on and more opportunities to pilfer the box. He could not understand what Mary had done because he didn't love Jesus. He never imagined giving anything to Jesus. He has no gratitude in his heart. Now in Luke 7, and let's be clear here, in Luke 7 we see a very similar account. A woman with a precious ointment, anointing Jesus' feet, washing them with her tears, and wiping them with her hair. That is not this Mary. That took place in the house of a Pharisee. And in that occasion, that Pharisee said, well, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, if he was really a prophet, he would not allow this. And Jesus tells him a parable about a man who is forgiven a great debt and a man who is forgiven a little debt. And he says, you know, who, who would appreciate the master more? Well, the one that was forgiven a great debt. And then he speaks to the woman. He says, woman, your sins are forgiven you. And then Jesus rebukes the man. He says, I came into your household and you did not wash my feet. That was a common courtesy. Remember, feet are filthy. Who wants dirty feet walking around the house? Your, your mom doesn't want that today, does she? And take your boots off the door. Right, And so you would meet your guest at the door, and if you had a slave, a servant, they would wash the feet. And if not, you could at least offer them water to wash their own feet. And Jesus said, Simon, you have done neither. And yet this woman has not ceased to bathe my feet with her tears since I've come into your house. Because that woman, great gratitude, because she was a great sinner. And yet Jesus has forgiven her. And she shows it out of the abundance and the gratitude of her heart. It's remarkable how that parallels this. Mary, we, is all we can tell, she was an honorable and respectable woman, but she too was a sinner who'd been saved. But her expression is because Jesus has raised her brother. To quote what Jesus said to that Pharisee, his name too was Simon. Interesting. Another parallel. Simon the Pharisee, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little and if nothing's been forgiven what love would you have for the master so judas had no love the broken vessel in the poured out spike nard to him it was just waste look at verse five why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor that's how he sees it now it's obvious that mary and her family are wealthy but their wealth remarkably has not become a snare as it so often does when John records these events, what he did not know, you know, then he knows later that Judas was the thief. Matthew tells us that Judas was not the only one who was indignant. Peter, right? How often we see Peter, he's a spokesman. You know, he speaks up. He's got something to say on the behalf of the others. This time it's Judas who's speaking on behalf of the others. The other disciples were indignant as well. Matthew informs us of that. And you think about the disciples, no doubt Judas' argument made sense to them. Yeah, what a waste. We could have sold it. Look at all the poor we could have helped. Not that they were necessarily looking to get anything out of it. They were not the thief. But Judas' argument affects them. You see how evil can overflow and affect us others? Someone said, hey, come on, let's do this. And they jumped right on board with Judas' whining and complaining about the whole matter. Well, here's a simple reality. In just a few short hours, yes, just a few short hours, Judas will go to the Pharisees, the chief priests. He will offer to sell them Jesus. He will betray Jesus for what? 30 pieces of silver. That's who Judas is. He only cares about the world. Jesus warns men. And what would you give in exchange for your soul? What is a profit for a man to gain the whole world? If you could have all the wealth of the world, children, can you even imagine how much that is? All the wealth of the world. If you had all that, would, would you... Give that in exchange for your soul. It wouldn't save you. Only Jesus saves. Well, there's others in the text that despise Jesus, and I've chosen to connect verses 9 through 11 with Judas' response, as well as what the disciples are saying. Jesus uh, was in Bethany. The word was out that Jesus was in Bethany. And a great many, John says, had come out, not only to see him, but Lazarus. The word's in Jerusalem. The word's all around. There are many people who've come, they're hearing about Jesus, a mighty work for the first time. They're curious, they go out. 
There's a lot of excitement. Many have chosen to walk the 1.7 miles from Jerusalem out to Bethany that Saturday evening. And some have gone back that evening to the chief priests. Remember when Lazarus was healed? There was a group of those. They got up and they went to the religious leaders. Tattletales. Do you know what Jesus did in Bethany? they got to tell them. They're all in on it. They think they're good informants in a family or something. So they've gone back. And so we were just talking about the hardness of heart children of, of uh, Judas. There's another group of men that have hard hearts. The chief priests, they hear these things. The chief priests, they plotted to put Lazarus to death also. We know they've already made up their mind about Jesus, but now they're saying Lazarus needs to be put to death. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Their power structure, their kingdom, their little dominion is being threatened because people are following after Jesus. My friends, that is no different today. There are people who come against the church today because people follow Jesus. They hate Jesus and they hate those who follow him and we can expect to suffer. Jesus told us that. And here's Lazarus because of the connection to Jesus. The religious leaders back inside the walls of Jerusalem are plotting Lazarus' death as well. What hard-heartedness. These men are ruthless. I was talking to one of our members before the service. I just finished a book on killing the mob. And uh, you know, I spent about a week in the, the pages of that book into the inner workings of the mafia and everything in our country. <sighs> These religious leaders remind me of them. Ruthless, brutal, violent, uncaring, no heart. There's nothing new under the sun. They were in Jerusalem in the halls of power in that day. And we're going to see what they bring about by the end of the week. And remember, they're upset about Lazarus. The chief priests were Sadducees. Do you remember what the Sadducees, why are they sad? They don't believe in a resurrection, amongst other things. They're upset because here's a resurrection. The very doctrine that they hold on to, there is no resurrection. Here's a man a mile and seven-tenths outside of Jerusalem in Bethany who, without any argument, without any debate, has been raised from the dead. Their whole religious belief system has been upset. And they despise Jesus and they despise Lazarus. So what do you think about what Mary did? We see these. Was it too much? Was Mary's gift too costly? What would your response be? What is your response to what Jesus has done for you? Think on that. Not just now, but as you go on through the day. Spend some time. What is my response to what Jesus has done for me? Do I despise him? Do I reject him? Or do you say, he is worthy of all my love, my affection, and my obedience, my devotion. Though it costs me everything, Jesus is worthy of it all. You see, no one looks at Jesus with indifference. You fall into one of the groups or the other. You have affection, admiration, loyalty, devotion, and obedience for Jesus, or you're against him. It's as simple as that. You've heard that before. You either love him or you hate him. So, we come to Jesus' defense and an explanation as we wrap up. Jesus was not silent when Jesus criticized Mary. Look at verse 7. But Jesus said, let her alone. I, I, I kind of imagine, you know, kind of the hubbub, they didn't go, hey guys, let her alone. I imagine it was more like, let her alone. This is a rebuke, and I imagine it was spoken with a tone of a rebuke. This is the king of glory, commands, and whole worlds come into existence, and he rebukes these men. And then he goes on to say, perhaps in a more gentler tone, she has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So here we see the defense, and then the second verse there, verse 8, an explanation. Actually, there's an explanation in the defense as well. Now, Jesus is speaking with an abbreviated style here. There's words that are left out, even as we often do. We'll be going along, we just stop, and whoever's listening to us, we know what the rest of what we were going to say. Or sometimes we pick up, and we can imagine you know, what came before it. And that's what's going on here. This is pretty common, particularly in the Greek. Verbs are often left out of sentences, because everybody knows you've got to have a verb, and it's really easy to supply the verb of being, which is the one that's often left out, like is or are, he is this, are, we're that. And that's the way Jesus speaks. Judas speaks with an abbreviated style in verse 5 as well. 
Judas was speaking to the rest when he criticized Mary. And, and Judas asked, why didn't Mary sell the spikenard and give the proceeds to the poor? And then Jesus tells us, he tells them and us why she didn't. Here's the full sense of what Jesus is saying. She did not sell it in order that she might keep it for the day of my burial. She has purchased this mindful of Jesus' impending death. Mary listened to Jesus. I, could, I would argue that Mary was one of the best listeners that Jesus had. She was listening. She was paying attention. She's understanding what's coming out of Jerusalem. The family's connected. They know that I have commerce in the city. She knows what the religious leaders are determined to do. Jesus himself has said that he is going to be crucified. And, re- and Peter has rebuked him. Mary is listening. She reminds me of another Mary. Jesus' mother. She was hearing things. She kept all these things. She's pondered them in her heart. This Mary from Bethany was doing that. She's come to understand that Jesus will soon be put to death by the leaders. The word is circulating. Look at John 57, 11, 57. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given the command. Earlier in the end of the other chapter, we find that they'd taken up stones to stone him. There was another occasion they were going to kill him, and he, he slipped out of their grip. Back in chapter 10, verses 31 and 32, you'll find it as well. Jesus has announced it. Mary's paying attention. Mary's wondering whether seeing others who love Jesus will be given an opportunity to prepare Jesus' body for burial. Will she have that occasion? Will she be able to anoint it properly? This is an honor that Mary wants to perform for her beloved Savior. She wants to make sure that it happens. And continuing to keep the vessel closed, that opportunity would slip away. She's right. By the end of this week, Jesus will be crucified. She knows what's going on. And so the occasion presented herself. There's no hostility. There's no uh, Jewish leadership. There's no soldiers and guards. This, this is a, a, a room, a gathering of friends, or at least so she thought, Judas being accepted. And so she does it. She's kept it for this occasion. Mark helps us, where he says, Mark 14, 8, Jesus, a little different, a fuller statement. Jesus has done what she could. I'm sorry, Jesus says she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. A conflict between what John and Mark record is just Mark provides us a richer account. So then Jesus adds to Mary's defense. He says, and this, I'm going to read this real literally. Y'all get this. Because there's plural pronouns, second person pronouns. For the poor y'all have with, will have always with y'all, but me y'all have not always. Jesus is going away. You, y'all, will still have the poor. Y'all can still care for them, but y'all are about to lose me. I'm going away. What Jesus says at that moment is very important. And thus, in that moment, it was more important to prepare him for burial than it was to care for the poor. That's what Jesus says. We should understand that. And Jesus says, yes, care for the poor. Don't miss this, church. Do not miss this lesson. We are to care for the poor. We have them with us always. And it's our privilege and our responsibility to care for the poor, particularly those who trust in Jesus. That's back in Matthew 25. We're to care for those in need. He says, if you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, we're to care for the poor in the church. We're to minister to their needs. Sometimes they're further away, but we're to care for the poor. Let's look at one more thing that Mark records that John does not about Jesus' defense of Mary. Verse 9 of Mark 14, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, see, Jesus knows where the gospel is going, doesn't he? What this woman has done will, be also, will also be told as a memorial to her. Right now, right here. Today, Jesus' words are true, as they're always true. Jesus, is, uh, Jesus tells us we'll remember Mary, and indeed we have, and we honor her. As we conclude, sorry about that, my face back. So, let's think about Mary's gift as we conclude. Um, I'm going to draw from William Hendrickson because he observes several things worthy of our consideration. This is abbreviated. If you want to see it more richly, it's in his commentary. That was to think about what Jesus has done to save 
I would, I would have you to think about what Jesus has done to save us from our sin, from death, from grave, from wrath, from hell. What gift can you use to repair Jesus? Well, there's nothing that compares. And yet, we see Mary, we see here the character of her gift. Mary gave with great gratitude from a thankful heart that overflowed into action. Words are cheap, right? But we're told Mary acted. How do we act? Well, regular communion with God warms our hearts for action. And for communion and fellowship with God, we're mindful of needs that are around us and what he would have us to do. So we commune with God and our hearts are warm. We're reminded regularly of the free gift of salvation that's been given to us. Mary gave a unique, it gave from a unique understanding. Remember, Peter denied it. Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified. Peter said, no way, Lord. And he says, get thee behind me, the one who opposes. Mary may not have fully understood Jesus' declaration as he came into Bethany. I am the resurrection and the life. But she understood that Jesus was going to die. And therefore, he was going to be buried. And he should be anointed for that. So she prepared him for that. And Mary also gave a regal gift. A gift fit for a king. And indeed, he is... He was, he is a king, the king of kings. And she did not just open the vessel and pour out some, little or much. She broke the vessel so that it would all come out on him. From his head all the way down to his feet, the whole town. And all knew and understood what Mary thought about Jesus. Do people around you know what you think about Jesus? What's your response to him is? Well, there's the evaluation of the gift in the text. We have Judas' evaluation. What a waste, he says. And then there's Jesus' evaluation. What Mary has done is a noble and a praiseworthy deed. As Mark writes it, a beautiful work. A beautiful work. Let our hearts sing. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my hands, take my feet, take my voice and my lips, my silver and my gold. Take my will and make it Thine. It shall no longer be mine. Take my heart, it is Thy own. It shall be Thy royal throne. Take myself and I will ever only be for Thee. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, this is a powerful text with a powerful lesson, a costly lesson. And yet, Lord, we who love you, we long to know how to serve you. And Lord, we know that it simply runs, comes down to it that we obey you. Lord, give us a heart that overflows with loving abundance and abundant love for a great king who has abundantly loved us and given us the costly, the most costly gift of all, even his own life, to save us from sin, death, and the grave. Lord, bless us as a grateful people to go and to serve others, even in doing so as we would serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing number 247, O Sacred Head, Wounded.